I want to start this episode with a little bit of an apology. I've made a statement that I'm going to be releasing the chapters from all of my books for free online. And the problem's been that I have gotten to a stage where I've got so many chapters of so many books that it's hard for me to keep up to date with a release schedule. And not that that's an excuse because I will get through things eventually, but it's more that for books like Under the Influence, it's it's hard for me to have the motivation to come back to. And the reasoning is because the content and the topic is emotionally confronting. Now that I've realized this, now that I've realized I've got this block, I want to basically take the time over this episode and the next few episodes to work through Under the Influence and to release the chapters both here and as blog posts online. So if you're following along, enjoy. And if you want to look at the previous chapters, you can click the link down below and there'll be episodes that are blogs and podcasts. Why am I sharing stuff for free? I've written a book. Why would I put it out there? So for those that don't know, I make an effort to share everything I do online for free. All the chapters of my books over time will be put out there. The idea being that if you need the help, if you need the support, if you can't afford it, you'll be able to grab yourself a copy. I don't think it's right to put information behind a paywall that could really help people. This book talks about my past and in particular the issues and the stuff that I had with my father. Just a brief overview. My father was a drug addict and a drug dealer. He had mental illnesses and basically in his household, you know, he didn't harm me directly, but the the people that he let in, the the clientele that he had were a different story. It was one part boredom, one part terror. And it's taken a long time to move on and overcome. And this book, Under the Influence Reclaiming My Childhood, was the first step in sort of taking what happened in my past and putting it into a current context as an adult and be able to start moving on past it. However, given the content, you know, writing this book took a lot out of me. It was very challenging. And every time I go back over a chapter, it hurts. So it's, I guess that's why I haven't sort of come back to it and focused it. And when I've gotten other books out, like How to Get Your Shit Together and all of the other stuff I'm doing, it's easy for me to just put it on the back burner. But now I realize that I'm sort of holding on to, unless I go through the motions of getting it out there, unless I put it out there, one, I'm not fulfilling the promise I made to you guys. And two, it's going to sit in the back of my mind, like this thing weighing on my shoulders, like, hey, you got to put this out, you got to put this out. So this episode, I'm going to read you a chapter um, and I'll talk about it a little bit after the chapter. And over the next few weeks, I'm going to start putting out the rest of the chapters from this book just to close off that part of my life in the sense that I can do as, use another form of healing. Because every time I look over this book, it impacts me deeply and I get more healing from it, but it's also like a bit of a shock. So with that in mind, I'm going to read to you a chapter called Lessons Learnt. All parents want to teach their children the ways of the world, guide them through the ambiguities of life, showing them with a soft and gentle hand the lessons that they learnt the hard way. Parents will say things like, be careful crossing the road, remember to say please and thank you, and follow your dreams with the hope that their young will heed their advice. Doing so will hopefully result in their child having the skills to successfully navigate their way through life in a much more secure and painless way. To his credit, Dad was no exception. He did teach me some things. He taught me how to fight. When I was quite young, I had a bullying issue. In the beginning, it, was too, it wasn't too serious, just some posturing and the occasional threat. However, over time, the threats became real and it often turned physical. 
To make matters worse, the other kids were starting to join in. Once I summoned the courage, I told Dad about it. He was visibly saddened. He pulled me aside and showed me how to hold myself in a fight. Told me how to clench my fists, put my guard up, and to throw a punch. I'd like to say that the bully didn't know what hit him, but he did. It was my right fist, square in his jaw. I knocked him off his feet and onto the ground and just walked away. From then on, all it took was an aggressive look in his direction to get him to back down. I never really had a problem with bullying since. Only that if you look crazy enough, people would typically leave you alone. He taught me the joys of outdoors and a love of nature. Most of my happy memories from my childhood came from camping adventures. Dad was an avid naturalist. His knowledge of plant life and nature was astounding. Walking in the bush with him was quite an experience. He could look at any particular plant and tell you all about it, how it reproduced and the other interesting facts. The one that stuck with me to this day was about the Banksia plant, which only releases its seeds in response to fire. He would talk about the issues of backburning to protect houses contrasted with the natural order of nature, which fire was a pivotal part of. He would concede that yes, it was destructive, but it also cleared way for new life. Being the other gardener that he was, I was outdoors beside him, repotting seedlings, transplanting cactuses, and learning about the best ways to maintain a worm farm. The love of nature extended to a variety of outdoor activities. There was truly something magical about camping in a secluded area with nothing to disturb you, with no noises to be heard other than the rustling of the trees in the wind, the crackle of the fire, and the flow of, near, of a nearby river over rocks. You don't know peace until you've experienced that. However, the most profound learning often comes not from what is said to the child, but what they see and feel. Day-to-day -day interactions, events, and norms of family life will often have significantly more impact upon the child than the planned lessons that the parents gave to their children. I have a feeling that Dad taught me a lot more than he intended to do. I learned how to grow marijuana plants under UV lights. I learned the best way to fit five times the amount of furniture into a room that would typically fit. I learned that all your friends will eventually rob you. I learned how to use a bong. I learned where the spare crowbar was, just in case I needed it to defend myself. I learned that some people will enjoy weed so much they'll use it as a seasoning on their salads. I learned that everyone is addicted to something. I learned to be vigilant in my attempt to avoid touching used needles. I learned that a locked bathroom was a place of safety, and I learned to wake at the quietest sound. Sadly, I learned that the movies are wrong. I learned that drug fuel parties are not always what they are cracked up to be, and that the first time you see a naked lady, it may not be a pleasant or exciting experience. Rather, it can be quite disturbing. I was quite young at the time, perhaps 13 years old. But being the shy kid I was, the thought of a girlfriend was quite a daunting one. I speak to girls my age quite easily, but I become nervous when it came to anything more than friendship. More than once I was embarrassed to say I left the spin the bottle circle to do something better. Sadly, this trend of passing up opportunities to develop a relationship with the opposite sex continued well into my late teens. So I was at my dad's house one night after school, and as usual he was very high, only this time he was having a party. I can't quite, quite recall the reason, but any excuse to get stoned would suffice. Weed and alcohol filled the air, with pills and needles being shoved into bodies all around. Sounds great, right? With music playing and some food about, everyone's sure to have a good time. I've seen in many movies in I've seen many movies in which they depict rampant drug use like it's fun and adventurous thing. Lots of people on drugs may freak out and go crazy, it's all in good fun. They recover the next day a little worse for wear, perhaps with a penis painted on their cheek. The audience laughs, and everyone moves on. The next day you get the slapstick humour derived from the suffering of a hangover, vomiting and nausea. Hilarious. I'm sure those kind of parties exist. However, my reality was significantly different. Picture yourself sitting next to your younger brother watching TV and waiting for dinner. You're just expecting a normal night of TV watching and being ignored for the most part by your father, who, as usual, would progressively get more and more stoned as the night went on. Towards the end of the night, you would somehow manage to get your younger sibling into bed and then try and get to sleep yourself, hoping not to be woken through the night by people knocking on the window. However, tonight is different. 
the place is a mess with rubbish and trash everywhere. And as always, there's no room to move about due to the immense amounts of furniture clogging up the living space. The house smells of sale food, vomit, and shit. Then the first guests arrive. They stumble through the door, exclaiming, Hey, mate. How you going? Long time, eh? At least that's what you think they're saying. They're already well beyond waste as they came through the door. Each one comes inside. You get more and more concerned with what may happen. They all look and smell exactly the same. Like Dad, but worse. What's more, they come bearing gifts. Most people bring a variety of narcotics. Enough to share. Whilst alcohol and weed are the most prevalent intoxicants, it's not uncommon to see pills or needles being passed around. As the night progresses, they become more and more incoherent, rambling incomprehensibly, with significant mood swings and sudden impassioned outbursts. They're all like that one drunk uncle you had to talk to when you were little. You know that one guy who became a bit too tipsy at family gatherings and proceeded to talk to you very loudly about some utter nonsense? The one you were too afraid to walk away from or to tell you to leave alone because they seemed quite emotionally volatile? Imagine a room full of these people, and only these people. No matter where you turn or where you go, you can't escape. They're everywhere, yelling at you, beckoning you to come to them, talking and swearing, getting higher and higher. The sole safe person to talk to is the stranger that is passed out in the corner. So you take a seat by him and wait. Seeing a group of adults getting more and more out of control and feeling helpless is one of the worst experiences ever. There's nothing like leaving one room in fear and need to return to that room moments later because there are many more terrifying things happening in the room next door. Suffice to say, talking to someone who is merely drinking and smoking seems quite substantially safer than being in a room when people are shooting up and passing a needle around. It's hard to adequately describe the average person at one of these events other than it was like they were not present. Looking into their eyes, you could only see blankness and despair, like a void that couldn't be filled. They were never quite with it, so you could never really tell if you were hearing or not. They'd be constantly looking off at angles rather than directly at you, and seemed quite agitated and angry. Agitated and edgy. Their movements were slow and deliberate, interposed with sudden erratic gesticulations, making them always seem off balance. From an external sober perspective, the conversations did not flow in the slightest. They'd be simultaneously talking about different topics changing themes mid-sentence and stopping halfway through words. Yet, miraculously, they somehow all managed to believe that they were effectively communicating with each other. In fact, they very much seemed to enjoy each other's company and would bask in the conversations they shared. Perhaps when you take that many drugs for that amount of time, you develop the psychic power to be able to have ten separate conversations at once with three different people and somehow be able to make sense of it. Ranging from philosophy to issues of morality to sporting accomplishments of their favourite teams as well as to work prospects and other profound observations on the human condition, they discussed it all. Who am I kidding? The main thing they discussed was how high they were, how high they're going to get, and the other times they were high, and their favourite, where to get the good shit. Often, as the night progressed, the concoction of drugs kicked in and the clothes started coming off, hands and lips started going places, and moved closer to each other, which leads me to my first experience of a naked lady. I'm not sure what most young boys imagined their first experience of seeing a naked lady would be like, but I gather it was not this. Leanne was a five foot six, slightly obese, obese middle-aged woman, her hair was blonde with significant grey regrowth. She had it styled in small greasy ringlets off to one side, and numerous split ends that suggested that she'd not washed in weeks. She was wearing heavy and trashy makeup that by the looks of it seemed to be day old. It was as if she'd applied layer upon layer of foundation and eyeshadow on top of itself without removing any in between. Her skin has well and truly aged beyond her years, hanging off her face like an ungainly horror, horror mask. It matches her teeth, the ones that remain, that is, which are stained and discoloured. Her eyes are glazed over and are quite bloodshot, with, with one eye fixed forward whilst the other gazes off to the side. Rather than quickly moving her eyes to look at you, she'll slowly turn her whole face towards you, thus ensuring that she'd aligned her good eye so that it's staring directly at you. All down both arms and legs will look like bruises interlaced with small holes in her skin. She is, however, dressed to impress. 
that night she donned a short miniskirt, which would make even the most exuberant young partygoer shy away in emba- embarrassment. Up, sh- up top, she wore a skin-tight halter neck shirt that revealed most of her back. She was, of course, shoeless, like everyone else at the party. She wore the overpowering mask of body odour, tobacco, weed and alcohol. So there I was, sitting in the lounge room, attempting to feign enough interest in the current TV program to dissuade the stone gentleman to my right from talking with me anymore. I figured if I just did the old, yeah, okay, yeah, uh, mm, and kept averting my eyes to the TV, he would eventually get the hint. I couldn't be too overly rude to him, however, as I didn't want to anger him. After roughly 15 minutes of this game, I heard a loud ruckus and looked up at the door to the lounge room. Leanne is standing there, topless and turning around. To the disbelief of everyone in the room, she's also in the process of taking her underpants off. Welcome to adulthood. Her breasts hung low with large erect nipples pointing at the ground. Extensive stretch marks reached all around her side, from her armpits to the base of her drooping bosoms. Her stomach fat rolled onto itself and was covered in small brown hairs which proceeded to get more numerous as they joined her pubic hair, which itself was wild and unkept. I stared frozen in shock as her red lacy underpants quickly came off, releasing a cramped caboose, enough that it dropped a couple of inches. Speaking of which, it too was covered in cellulite and more stretch marks. When she turned to face in my direction, I couldn't help but wonder if all women were as hairy as she was downstairs. It seems like you could have braided it with ease. The room went silent, even the stone people having ten conversations at once stopped to look. She entered the room and beckoned someone in the corner. The guy promptly jumped up and whilst slapping her heart on her exposed droopy ass, he embraced her passionately. Then they turned them and led them into a room down the hallway. My room. The noises that followed informed us of what was happening inside. Lucky, lucky man. So there I was, shocked, with nowhere to run or hide. I sat silently while Dad entered the room. Seeing the pale expression on my face, he offered some words of comfort. Don't worry, son, they're not all like that. I was so shocked that I stayed silent, and he left without saying another word. Should have responded with, Ha ha, oh god, I hope not. Did you see her? If they're all like that, I have dire hopes for the human species. But I was 13. It was my first experience seeing a naked lady. What was I to know? Porn and later girlfriends soon corrected my initial experiences. However, it was a tumultuous few years there of significant uncertainty pertaining to the female form. On a positive note, I learned that if your first experience is as bad as mine was, you can only really go up from there. (sighs) Despite everything, the most poignant lesson of all that my dad taught me was to fear addiction. To this day, I can't enjoy much of anything without having a significant fear of substance dependency rising in the back of my mind. I'm worried about my own addictive tendencies. I find myself questioning why I'm consuming the substance rather than just enjoying it. Whilst this will definitely keep me out of trouble in the long run, it's horribly restrictive among friends or at any social event. I'll often find myself intentionally, unintentionally pacing the room, internally repeating the mantra of, I can't get addicted, I won't be like him. Clearly this internal mood is not cognizant to a fun social experience, so when it occurs I have to excuse myself for a while to clear my head. Initially I'll try to push it aside, but this just made it worse. Besides, it's hard to push something aside whilst you're simultaneously trying to prove it right. I remember looking at my pathetically passed out or intoxicated father knowing that I would never be a slave to addictions he had. At one stage I was tempted to take up tobacco cigarettes and then to quit just to prove myself that I was stronger than he was. Thankfully I had the sense to not even begin. At weddings or over dinner I often refuse drinks on offer because I don't see the point of social drinking as I feel that it will only embed a habit that I can't afford to have. When I do drink, I'm filled with anxiety and concern that I'll become an alcoholic. Same is true even for food. Therefore, I often won't consume anything remotely addictive. If I do, I make sure to keep a record of how I'm taking it, so I can track my usage just to not let it get out of hand. One of my greatest fears is to become my father, primarily becoming dependent on a substance and subsequently neglecting my children. Sadly, the most important lesson my dad taught me was what not to do in life. In almost every way possible, dad was a sorry excuse for a human being and a woefully bad father. 
Sometimes I joke about it because I know that no matter what goes wrong in my life, no matter how badly I mess up and regardless of what I do, I still won't be at his level of aberration. One of my major life goals is to never become him, and more importantly, never bring children into a world where somebody like him is raising them. I couldn't bear the thought of my children looking at me the way I look at him. So that was a chapter from Under the Influence, Reclaiming My Childhood, called Lessons Learnt. And if you want to read that chapter and the other chapters, it's out now as a paperback ebook and audiobook. If you click the link down below, you'll be able to read this chapter and the other chapters I've released. Like I said, I'm going to be making an effort to put the rest of those chapters out. It's revisiting this book is always challenging because as you can tell, it goes into depth with some of the more poignant and traumatic and challenging moments. And in addition, this was written maybe three years, three to four years ago now. So how I feel about the events now are different to you know how I wrote about them here. For example, I'm far more forgiving of my father now in the sense that you know, I, 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 I don't, he should have acted differently, but I know more about his past and I know I've contemplated it more. And I realize that he too is a product of his childhood. He too is a product of his upbringing. He, you know, went down certain paths and made certain choices for sure. But I'm, I'm more understanding that, you know, we're all part of the flow of life and he just didn't make some right choices and could have done other things. This isn't to say that the things he did was right. It's shocking and abhorrent, but I'm a little bit more understanding towards his plight because he too was struggling. He too faced issues of sexual trauma growing up. He too faced issues of mental health and addiction and all of these things, and he, he, he had less supports in, his, in place. And perhaps genetically he wasn't as strong. I don't know. Perhaps he didn't have someone fucking up in his life as he fucked up in my life as an example of what not to do. And on that topic, I now have taken to going, okay, I'm not going to take my life and go, I'm not going to move towards your life, as in, I'm not going to be you and that's what my goal for life is. I'm now aiming forward. I'm now looking towards having an abundant lifestyle. I'm now setting goals and dreams and desires and you know, moving from a place of not just surviving but to passionately thriving. So, so revisiting this book sort of makes me feel a bit like the past. It makes me, puts me back in that mental state, but I want to try and close the loop here and release it and share it. And, and on that topic, if, if you can relate to this book, if you feel these feelings, if you have certain things going on that, that, that makes you sort of connect here, I want you to do a couple of things. Number one, read the rest of the book. Number two, if you've got a story to share, I've got a couple of ways that I'd like you to share it. Either contact me on social media at Zach P. Phillips and just tell me directly. But if you feel like you want to share it publicly, I've got a share your story project where people write in like basically a chapter of their life, you know, summarizing a particular part or, you know, their whole journey or whatever they like about mental illness, addiction, trauma, sexuality, stigma, all of that sort of stuff. The idea being that I got a lot of benefit from writing and sharing that and other people got a lot of benefit from reading my story and I want to extend that. So if you can relate and you want to share it, click the link down below or put a link to the Share Your Story project and you can consider sharing your own story and check out the other stories there as well. And like I said, if you want to grab a copy and support what I'm doing here, you can do so. It's out now as a paperback, ebook and audiobook. Um, but if you just want to check it out for free, it's on my website. So yeah. 
Thanks for listening, guys. Cheers. Thank you.